the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the founder and editor of The Sprawl. And Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM. And we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Calgary in Treaty 7 territory. Sprawlcast is a show for Albertans who want more than the daily news grind. And we go deep to bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. cried out of frustration. I've cried because we've all seen the killing of black males before, but it felt like this one felt different. It felt different, and I know everybody felt the same thing that I felt because everyone's here, and I think it's because it was the last straw. Okay, and I've been angry. I was very angry, and I didn't know what to do about it. I woke up this morning frustrated. I wanted to burn the world to the ground, but you know what I have now? Seeing everybody in this crowd, I have hope. I have hope that everybody here is going to do what they have to do individually to make this change happen. You just heard voices from the Black Lives Matter protests in Calgary this week. That last clip was from a vigil at Olympic Plaza on June 3rd, which took place after a historic march through the city's core. Thousands upon thousands of people marching for hours, calling for an end to police brutality and white supremacy, not just in the U.S., but here in Canada, here in Alberta. Cheryl Fogo has been writing about being black in Alberta for over three decades. She's explored the history of black migration to Alberta in the 20th century and the modern black experience. She's an award-winning playwright, filmmaker, and author. Her first book was just republished this year in a 30th anniversary edition. It's called Pourin' Down Rain, A Black Woman Claims Her Place in the Canadian West, and her latest project is a documentary film on the black Alberta cowboy, John Ware. For much of her career, Fogo has been shattering myths about black people and communities on the Canadian prairies. I spoke with Fogo this week after the historic marches in downtown Calgary. So Cheryl, you've been you've been writing about the black experience in Western Canada for more than 30 years now. What has the last week been like for you with seeing the violence against black people and then the the strong emergence of Black Lives Matter including in Calgary uh, these historic protests? I think the only thing that's been different about the last week for me than my life in general has been the strong show of support in Calgary specifically. Because the death of George Floyd is um, one of many, 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 many deaths of Black people and Indigenous people that I have been bearing witness to for 
a long, long time, many, many years. And the, the difference with George Floyd's death and Ahmad Arbery's death is that they were recorded and their their actual dying moments were recorded. Although I think Philando Castile's was as well. Um, so the experience, the grief that I've experienced in the last week is very familiar. I have grieved so deeply for um, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Riona. Uh, in Canada, we have so so many instances as well. Colton Bushy, uh, a young Indigenous man, but Defonte Miller, many many of these. Um, horrific incidents happen on a very regular basis. And they're, they are hyper-conscious in my world because I'm a black person who writes about black life. And so the grief that I experienced over George, George Floyd specifically is very familiar. I have uh, attended many marches in my time. I The first time I ever marched, as I talk about in Pouring Down Rain, I was 11. And um, I've gone to other marches and gatherings in Calgary to protest racism. And they've been quite small, and one does not feel very safe in those situations uh, because, of course, the white supremacists are out in full force and... They, they're they running around taking pictures of people. So it's a very vulnerable thing to have to do when the numbers are small. I haven't been able to attend any of the protests this week because I've had a back injury, but I was deeply touched to see so many people turn out. So for me, that's that's the difference in, in this experience over the last week. Mm-hmm. And I want to go way back because, you know, you mentioned how you've been living with that grief for, for a long time. And, and in the book, you talk about learning about Jim Crow from your mom when you were growing up in Bowness and kind of discovering what it was like to be a black child uh, in a white society. Can you talk a little bit about that, like when you first became conscious of racism growing up in Calgary? I would say it's probably um, a very young age and probably connects to the first time I was ever called the N-word or perhaps it was one of my brothers. But we had older cousins. We were part of a a small and very close-knit black family and black community in Calgary. And so... Jeremy, I'm going to say maybe I was four when I started, maybe three, four years old, when I started realizing that our blackness set us apart and also set us up for ill treatment. I was very young, and, and it's it was so much a part of the fabric of our lives that it was an evolving process because, you know, no black ch- no black parent sits their two-year-old down and says now here i'm going to tell you about the world it just we swim in we swim in a world that is built upon white supremacy 
and racism is all around us. So when you are a child that's on the receiving end of that, it's it it is it is almost a part of your consci- consciousness um, before you you even have full memories. So I I don't have a memory of when I first became conscious of this. I do have memories of when I started asking questions. I do have memories of when I really started paying attention to the stories that my mom and her siblings would tell, would talk about and that kind of thing. But I, I don't have a memory of first becoming aware of race because it was just always there. Hmm. And, and what was black, the black community like when you grew up in Calgary? I think in the book you describe it as, you know, there were, there were only hundreds of black people in Calgary at the time. Yeah. So there were hundreds um, hundreds in my sphere anyway. I mean, we tended to operate within a community that were, for the most part, descendants of the Black Migration of 1910, as it's generally known. Uh, it wasn't until I was a little older that people who were f- from Africa and from the Caribbean started joining that circle and and you know i was i was you know close to teen years when the restrictions on migration from the caribbean were loosened um so in terms of what that community was like it it consisted mostly of people who had grown up in amber valley or near maidstone saskatchewan or camp c alberta the five five black settlements that were created by the migration of 1910. Some of the people I knew were original to that migration. So they were elderly people who had been in Canada since 1910. Some were their children who they had raised in Amber Valley and some were their, some were their grandchildren, but it was a quite a tight knit little community, very supportive for the most part, I, you know, I, I don't like to um, gloss over the fact that, you know, obviously there were some people in the community that didn't like somebody else and that kind of thing. But for the most part, it was a, a very supportive community. If somebody died, the community came to your house with food. And likewise, if, if someone else died, you went, you know, I went with my mom to bring food to, to people and we gathered regularly both at church and uh, at picnics and that kind of thing. Um, So even though hundreds sounds like a small number, we were still quite invisible in a way. Our, Our gatherings seemed to be, our gatherings made us highly visible and people seemed to be surprised to see us all the time. Because I don't think, I don't think it occurred to white people who were living in Calgary at that time that there was a community of that consisted of hundreds of black people. Um, most people, when I walked down the street, stared at me like I was the first black person they had seen. So, even though that number does sound small, it, it seems to me like it was a big enough number that people should have been used to us. <laughs> hmm. And. 
You mentioned the the migration uh, from the U.S. in 1910, and and in the book you talk about this, and you talk about how you found a place of belonging as a teenager by investigating your own family's history. Mm-hmm. What prompted that that journey for you, and and what did you find that kind of connected you to this place? Well, I think I am a person that was born for story. So I think the first thing that attracted me to learning more about the stories behind that migration was just that they were stories. I was a voracious reader and I loved writing. I loved writing stories and I had never, um, you know, we never went to the theater or anything, but I remember writing plays in grade five and six. Um, So I think it was story that pulled me in initially. I was also a very family-minded person. My mom and her eight siblings were close and they valued family very much. And so that again was just part, a part of my DNA was being, being interested in the well-being of family. And so I think it was a combination of how much I bought into the family narrative of just who we were as a family, but then also the stories. And when I started learning about my grandfather's father, that was a huge revelation and and a shocking revelation. And your grandfather's father uh, grew up, grew up where? He grew up in, Arkansas, for the most part, for the first six years of his life, that's where he was born, um, quite close to Little Rock. And uh, then he and his two brothers were stolen from their home and sold into enslavement. And he remained enslaved until he was about 12 years old. Um, when he, he kind of self-emancipated because his the person that had enslaved him didn't tell him that the Emancipation Proclamation had been made, so he didn't know he was free. He was young and um, isolated. By that time, he was in Texas. That's where he had been sold into enslavement. Uh, I was just reading the other day that, or no, it was um, it was a woman I was listening to on a podcast, actually, talking about the fact that it was very common that people who were isolated in their enslavement didn't know that they were free. So that's what happened with my grandfather. But when I started hearing that, I was shocked, first of all, to know that enslavement was that direct a connection to me myself. I, I, I sort of thought of it as something that had happened way, way long ago in the past. But when I realized, okay, my mom was raised by my grandpa, who was raised by a person who had been enslaved generationally it wasn't very far away even though in terms of years it seemed like a long time ago um i i was fascinated by those stories although horrified at first and devastated to hear about them but recognized that i think i always recognized that that stories were the best way to communicate with people to create change, to create understanding. 
And I think that's what pulled me in. And then how did your family come to Canada? Um, Both of my maternal sets of great-grandparents came in that 1910 migration. They, at that time, were both living in Oklahoma, both sets. So my great-grandfather, Willie Glover, and my great-grandmother, Katie Glover, and my great-grandfather, Rufus Smith, who was the one that was enslaved, and my great-grandmother, Drusilla Smith, were all living in Oklahoma at the time, but they didn't know each other before they came to Canada. So there was a a lot of tension in Oklahoma. Uh, You've probably heard of the Greenwood Massacre, what used to be kind of known as the Tulsa Riots of 1921. they were living, my, my great-grandparents, the Smiths, were living one block over from Greenwood Avenue. So although my family had already left before that infamous massacre took place, that was their community. They were part of what was known as Black Wall Street. It was an incredibly thriving black community. It was considered the most affluent and successful black community in the United States at that time. And the kind of tension that boiled up and resulted in that horrifying massacre was already present when my great-grandparents were living in Oklahoma. That's why they left. That, uh, that disenfranchisement, lynchings, burning people's homes out, bombing their businesses. Well, they didn't bomb the businesses until 1921, but destroying people's ability to make a living, it was pretty horrific. They were living through some very hard times down there. So then when the Canadian government started advertising for American farmers to come up and break what, what they so horribly call break the land, um, my great-grandparents, like many of their counterparts who came up in that migration, thought it was realized it was time to go, time to get out of of the southern U.S., but also thought that Canada was the ideal destination because they had been hearing about Canada for decades, going way back to enslavement. So that's sort of, they came up by train and by ox cart, and, you know, they, they, they took their stuff to the train station, took what they could, and, um, you know, took their money and got on the trains and then eventually traveled by horse and cart or ox and cart to their various little parcels of land. And let's talk about that history a little bit of these black homesteaders coming to Canada, because, you know, it's easy to hear hear that story and kind of have a romantic view of that. Um, but as the Canadian government figured out what was going on, uh, that black homesteaders were coming to Western Canada. They, they decided to do something about it. Can you, can you talk a little bit, bit about that? What happened? Yes. The Canadian government was caught off guard by the arrival of black people. They were not looking for black people to come. They were, they were advertising for white people to come. So, 
within a very short period of time, it was actually 1911 that Wilfrid Laurier signed an order in council saying that black, essentially, you know, people can look it up for themselves to see what it actually says. It's, it's all bound up in very legalistic language, but essentially saying blacks aren't welcome and will be prohibited from coming. The response, especially in the cities, was very unfriendly, very hostile. Boards of trade, newspapers, pretty well every every organization that was in existence and established in the cities rose up in outcry against this migration. If you if you spent time searching through the newspapers of 1910 through 1912, looking for, for stories about this migration, you would simply, you would run out of time if you didn't first run out of the energy to actually try to absorb the hate and the hostility that the community faced. So yes, it was not, uh, was not a welcome migration, and I think it would have been a much bigger and more sustainable migration if that hadn't happened, because the Canadian government tried all kinds of things to prevent people from coming, and ultimately when they hired some people, mostly a couple of preachers, to go down and talk to the people down there and tell them about you're not welcome, number one, you, you'll face the same kind of racism, and number two, you should see how cold it is. People stopped coming. So it was really a, a full-on campaign to deter this. It was. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. And and then that played out, you know, that played out on a large scale with, with that wave of migration, but then that kind of played out again and again, you know, even looking at Calgary, uh, in certain neighborhoods, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Calgary and Edmonton were really bad for virulent racism. And you can you can go right through the decades. I don't know if you, you've seen my, my short film called Kicking Up a Fuss, the Charles Daniels story, but in 1914, Charles Daniels, who was part of a black community that was here before my ancestors came, um, tried to go see a play at the Grand Theater and was refused admittance. They tried to sell, get him to, to agree to sit up in the balcony where they segregated black people, and he refused because he had a ticket for the orchestra. Um, there was a, quite a famous law civil civil rights case that came out of that that was 1914 but yeah just you know in 1920 there was a petition in Victoria Park to they first of all wanted to to you know like take people's homes away from them and send them away they wanted them they wanted them removed they also wanted to prevent any further uh, infiltration as they thought of it of blacks into the community. So about 75% of people who were living in Victoria Park at that time signed the petition. Um, It's a very long petition. You can go down to City Hall and see all the signatures, uh, including R.B. Bennett, who was a future prime minister. 
So that happened in 1920. Um, if you if you go through the decades, there there are many incidents that demonstrate how deep, deeply embedded in society anti-black racism was. There was a famous riot in 1945, I think, or 1944, toward the end of the war, of white soldiers who attacked a home of a black musician. And, uh, you know, the, the newspaper accounts of it have the numbers of, of white soldiers who marched on this home anywhere between 200 and 300. Yeah, it was really ugly. And when you add in um, all the discrimination black people faced because they weren't welcome in hotels, they weren't welcome in restaurants, uh, trying to find housing was really difficult. You see that there was a, a menu of the many different tentacles of racism that operate discrimination in jobs. Um, it was tough going. And that just, that just traveled up and bubbled up everywhere and all around throughout the decades. Yeah. And very much informs what's happening right now, right? Absolutely. I'm speaking with the Calgary writer, playwright and filmmaker, Cheryl Fogo. Her current project is a documentary film about the black Alberta cowboy, John Ware. And you might have learned about him in school or maybe during Black History Month. But much of what we know of John Ware is really from a white perspective. It's a white telling of the story. A lot of it is drawn from the 1960 book, John Ware's Cow Country, written by former Calgary mayor and Alberta lieutenant governor, Grant McEwen. But Cheryl Fogo went looking for the real John Ware. Cheryl and her daughter, Miranda Martini, have been working on a play about John Ware called John Ware Reimagined. And in February, they performed parts of it at the National Music Center. Let's listen in to a bit of that performance. My life was divided into four. Four times, each time better than the one previous. When I was a boy, until I was a young man, somebody owned me. Somebody said they owned me. That was time one. Only good thing that can be said for time one was I learned my place. Top of the world, sitting in a saddle on top of the world. If you let a horse teach you, you'll know what you need to do and when you need to do it for the rest of your life. A horse will teach you everything you need. Balance. How to hold on. Satan is a liar and a conjurer too. You don't mind, he'll conjure you. John Ware was a 
black cowboy who came up to Canada in the fall of 1882 on the first large, the first very large cattle drive, bringing cattle into the area to the ranches. And he established himself quite early on because he was very skilled with all animals. He was, um, he loved animals and he was great with horses. He was good with the cattle, dogs, you know, they, they all loved him. And he actually was so skilled and talented that even by the time they got to Canada, he had already been given a level of responsibility for that cattle drive and was recommended to be hired by the, the boss of that cattle drive. Tom Lynch recommended him to the people who were operating the Bar U Ranch, or what was known as the Northwest Cattle Company at that time. So he was, uh, he was a very skilled horseman. He was very, very smart. He was very savvy in terms of business. He knew how to do stuff and make stuff happen. And he had a very winning personality. He also was very good at sussing out who he could sort of get on his side. He faced a lot of racism and he knew that he would need allies in, uh, in the ranching community among the white ranchers. So he was just a very savvy, smart, big, strong, funny, friendly, helpful, skilled with a skilled with a rope, skilled with everything, you know, ran faster than anybody. He was just one of those people that had it all. <laughs> and uh, so he became um, well-liked in the area and was on his way to you know, being quite a successful rancher at the time of his death in 1905 his accidental death. So that's sort of the broad strokes of who he was. Um, and and how did you first come across John Ware? Well, my brother and I have tried to figure out and pinpoint many times the first time we heard his name because we had heard of him when we were fairly young. We didn't know he was black. Um, but we, many people in my community knew his children. So we would hear the name Ware. Bob Ware worked as a porter. John Ware's oldest son, Bob, worked as a porter. And almost all the black men in the community worked for the railroad in one form or another. So we're not sure of the first time we heard the name John Ware, but it was in the context of him having been a cowboy and a very respected figure. But we didn't necessarily put it together with this Ware family that people in the community knew. So it's quite murky <laughs> to, to try to parse out when did we first hear of him. When we first became conscious of him as a black cowboy and rancher was when my brother went to the Glenbow at around about age 12, we think, and saw the John Ware display that was there and came home and told me, you know, he's black. Um, and that's when I first became interested in his story. And it's 
probably one of the reasons why he was, you know, a file that I established when I was trying to become a writer and thinking about things that I could write about. But I, like many people, thought John Ware was a singular black figure in his day. And it was very surprising to me when I began to do research and start writing about John Ware. It was very surprising to find out that he came into an already existing group. I don't even know if you could call it a community, but there were black people here when he came. There were black people who came while he was here in his early years, and many black people before the migration that involved my great-grandparents in 1910. There were, there were many southern Alberta black residents. So that was one of the things that was surprising to me and, and kind of delightful. And then someday I would like to try to do more research about his relationships in the small black community that was here. That's interesting because, yeah, certainly in the popular imagination, uh, yeah, John Ware, he's he's a singular, singular figure, this black cowboy, this legend, right? Yeah, and I observed that narrative just like everybody else. Um, so it was, I, I always assumed that my community that that we were apart from John Ware, that we were the first black people to come here. But it was really fascinating to find out that wasn't the case. You know, that Charles Daniels and his friends who tried to strike down segregation laws in Calgary were an established community that was here before my folks came up. So, you know, if you just go back and peel back the layers you see that a black presence in Western Canada and Southern Alberta is very underreported and underknown. It doesn't really fit within the narrative of Canada that we have. Therefore, this notion of this one singular black person who was able to succeed is kind of held up as an example of how Canada was not racist, but um, the whole story just needs retelling and to be contextualized. And that is what I'm trying to do in my film, John Ware Reclaimed. Mm -hmm. And and you've said uh, that you want to be the one that finds John Ware, mm -hmm. uh, that, that you want to take a giant eraser, swipe it a across everything that's been said about him and get closer to what is true. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a lot of different things I mean by that. And I'll start with the second part, which is his story has not been accurately told. And the missing parts of his story are very important and necessary for people to know. So that's one thing. That's about the giant eraser and just wanting to start again, begin at the beginning and, and reclaim and revise that story to include all the missing elements. That's one thing. The first part about wanting to be the one to find him 
is, I guess, maybe in some ways related to having had his existence and his legacy have a very real impact on how I feel about myself as a Western Canadian and fully claiming my place here. He had an impact on my life. And I think in some ways it's appropriate that I am the one searching for him and seeking for him. Um, although I would be very happy with any, I'd be very happy for anybody to find John where it's just that I want to be the one. It's almost a, a spiritual calling. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, in a way it is. Um, I feel a, a very deep connection, not just to him, but to his wife, Mildred, to Mildred's family, the Lewises, and perhaps even especially to John Ware's children, in particular Janet, the oldest, who they called Nettie, and Bob, the the one I mentioned, because they were people who existed in my community when I was a little kid. They were elders in the community, and lots of people knew them. Um, so I feel a very strong connection to the wares, for sure. And I can't even describe it. I, I don't have words to describe it. Sometimes it does feel almost like a spiritual calling. Let's listen into another song from John Ware Reimagined. It's called Open Door, and it's from the perspective of Mildred Lewis after she met her future husband, John Ware. saw you smiling that night on the porch think all it took to set my soul free was somebody waiting to open the door I've never felt so far from So close to the stars I think I could fly With your arm to hold on to To a new little world That's just ours We won't grow an orchard Of peach trees In this cold ground So rich in love but I can feel orange blossoms on the sweet breeze floating down from heaven above. I think a door just opened for good. 
I think my days of sorrow are past Isn't it sweet to be understood Isn't it sweet this relief at last Thank God Almighty I've found Yeah, it has been uh, a, a real journey, and I, I had been gathering information about John Ware everywhere that I came across it, and also doing some actual, you know, deep dives for information for quite a while. But in 2012, when the Stampede was celebrating the hundredth, I wanted to put that material to work. At that point, I thought it was appropriate after a conversation with Tundi Duwadu, who was the artistic director of Africa Day at that time. Um, so that's when I started working on the presentation that eventually became the play. And somewhere along the way, I realized that people were hungry for John Ware's story. And my play was a fiction. It was a, a, an imaginative piece that contained some truth but I didn't want to just leave it at that because I you know I took lots of liberties not with his well you know in a couple of places I guess with his obviously I wasn't there when he and his wife were interacting in their cabins so yes I took liberties I I made up situations and put words into their mouth but I also wanted to do something that was a non-fiction look at John Ware's life, which is what my film is. And you've also made it a family project, which is kind of cool to see, uh, working on it with your, with your daughter, Miranda Martini. Uh, how did that come about? Cause it's kind of, it's thematically consistent with, with the whole thing and with your, with your career really. Yes. And I guess that sort of sums up my career. Everything in my life is, I, I live a, a highly integrated life. So much of my work is about a community and a people, but it's also about my family because my that is my family's story. Um, so it really was quite a natural fit. Miranda was in Vancouver at the time that I started working in 2012. I wanted to get a presentation ready for Black History Month. And she was a, a songwriter. She, she wrote the first song that I remember hearing her perform when she was in grade six, when she was graduating from her little class at Hillhurst Elementary. She had been songwriting for years, and she's a terrific singer. So I called her and asked her, I told her what I was doing and asked her if she could write a song that was about the flood of 1902 in Southern Alberta and a song that was a country song with soul. And Miranda 
because she also grew up within this history and was a big fan of John Ware in part because I was. Uh, she she got what I wanted. She knew sort of instinctively, I guess it was kind of within her wheelhouse to write that song because she also was writing part of her own story. So she wrote she wrote that song for the little presentation. And as I moved forward wanting to do the piece, you know, take it to places, especially places that had been connected to the Ware family, she wrote a couple more. And um, eventually when we had decided to do it, Janelle Cooper and I decided to do it as part of our Black Canadian theater series that we co-produced in 2013-14. We invited Chris Demeanor to come in as a co-musical director and songwriter for the piece. Miranda didn't feel that she was necessarily a musical director. She was a singer-songwriter. So we added Chris's voice to the the mix and that was a wonderful partnership. But yes, Miranda gets me in a way that no one else could. I'm a very musical person although I have no skills to I you know I'm not a singer. I I don't play any musical instruments, but music is everywhere in my life. There there's not a single day that goes by where I don't listen to music and it music is also very much a part of my history as a person of African descent in North America. So to have a musician in my home is a fantastic fit for me. And Miranda gets all of those influences. She just gets them because that's her story as well. So it is, and, and my brother Richard, you know, having been the person who went to the Glenbow and saw that display and, you know, that thing that sort of lit us on fire, um, he's in my film, and there's a character based on him in the play, John Ware Reimagined. My mom makes a, a cameo appearance in John Ware Reimagined. Yeah, my work is is about the story of a people in a place and a time it's also very much my family story Mm -hmm. and going back to to the first question i asked you uh, about what's happening today you know as somebody who's researched this and lived this for so long what would you say to the young black calgarians who are marching in the streets today like right now uh, for black lives matter First of all, I would say that young people give me incredible hope. And I think are going to take a giant step forward in terms of claiming their absolute indisputable right to live in safety and peace and with the same access to opportunity and resources that white people have and that everybody should have. 
I think my generation lived in a world where racism operated differently and we sort of did our best to try to navigate within that system. Young people are much less patient with that, with that kind of slow one step forward, a half step back type of progress, if you can call it that. And here we are living in a world where the same horrors that I faced as a child, the exact same horrors, which is witnessing lynching and the murders of people who look like me and us, like those young black people you're talking about, they're still happening, but now they're being carried out by the state, by the police. I just would offer my encouragement, my love, my support, and my full understanding of their pain and their anger and their wish to be allowed to get on with their lives and breathe and just live and not have to wake up to those horrors day after day after day. Things really have to change. And when I look back over my lifetime, I'm very discouraged by the way things change. <laughs> the way things change from it, it's just moving goalposts or, or you know, squishing the balloon and having the bulk have it come out between, you know, different fingers than it was coming out before. It's just a shifting beast, racism and racial violence. So I completely understand and support and love those young people who want to make a better world and who fully understand that a better world for us is a better world for everybody. I guess that's what I would say. We'll close out with one more song from John Ware Reimagined. You're going to hear Fogo acting the parts of both John Ware and Mildred Lewis, followed by Miranda Martini performing the song Spring 1902. You make any horse look beautiful. You hate horses. I don't hate horses. Millie, you've lived on a ranch 13 years and have never come within two feet of a horse. I don't like them. Fine. I hate horses. The mares, the nags, the studs, I hate them all. The only thing worse than the horses are the cows with their great big heads and the way they look at you while they're chewing their food. What are they looking at anyway? But you, I never get tired of looking at you on a horse. You look like a god. Don't blaspheme, darling. Well, you do. No wonder we have all these children. Those days when I have a pie in the stove and I come to the porch looking for you because you said you'll go out to the cellar and get me some potatoes so I can start supper. And there you are in the paddock, forgot about the potatoes, and riding one of those big old broncs. And you know I'm mad. 
and I get my hands on my hips ready to holler but before I can get to hollering I find myself just watching you and before I know it I'm saying to myself if that isn't the prettiest man I ever did see do you notice how life gets harder when you have more to live for days of worry nights of prayer fathoms deep in mud and soil I see in the lines upon your face, dear, that sweet girl I built a life for. Now a woman worn with patience, baptized in the flood and but the sky above is big enough to wrap us both up safe and sound next year's green singing to you if you put your ears right to the ground the stars will shiver when I whisper sweet things to you listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus and I'm the founder and editor of The Sprawl. And this episode was co-produced and edited by Mike Todd. On this show, you heard excerpts from John Ware Reimagined, performed at and recorded by the National Music Center in February. The songs Open Door and Spring 1902 were written by Miranda Martini, who performed them. You can find a link to the full performance on our website, sprawlcalgary.com. We're in the middle of a new edition on racism, so stay tuned for more stories. You can also find an edited transcript of my interview with Fogo on our website. We use Opal Transcription Services for that. They're a local Calgary-based company. The Sprawl team is myself, assistant editor Jimena Gonzalez, comics artist Sam Hester, and art director Chris Pecora. Our staff writer intern for the summer is Hadil Abdelnabi. 
Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>